Welcome to the Carboline Tech Service Podcast. I'm Jack Walker. With me, as always, is the Director of Technical Service, Mr. Paula Jamis. And Paul, I'm a big old fat liar. I heard your trip was not quite as rough coming home as you anticipated it would be. Yeah, so let me let you guys into a little uh, production secret here. Sometimes we have to do these in advance. You mean we don't always send these out live? Right. And, you know, I even talked about it with my wife and she said, you know, the good money was on the fact that he was going to be a screaming fool. Because that's what he's been every car trip that we've ever taken. But And toddlers are consistent. Yeah, and... But that's okay. I'll be a liar with an excellent eight-hour drive home. The kid watched the same four episodes of Curious George all the way back. We'd be like, "Grant, you want a different? You want a different movie?" Nope. <laughs> Whatever. All right. So today we have a special guest, and uh, we got Steve Harrison in to talk about our Carbotherm products. So we kind of give a really good introduction to him when we uh, start our interview. So real quickly, you can get a hold of us at technicalservice at carboline.com. You can also reach Jack on Twitter at Jack underscore CTSP, and I'm at Paul underscore CTSP. One last thing I'd like to do before we kick it off to the interview is just say thank you. We hit 10,000 listens this month. That's a testament to you guys listening, tuning in, subscribing. That's an important thing. Subscribe so you don't miss these. So thanks again, and here's our interview with Steve. Joining us today on the Carboline Tech Service Podcast is the man, the myth, the legend, the composer of the Carboline theme song, the one and only Steve Harrison. Hey, Steve, how's it going? Welcome to the show. Hi, Jack. Hi, Paul. Uh, it's really nice to be here again. It, it's great to have you here, Steve. And I, we couldn't let this episode go by. We have to We have to tell the little story. You were introduced to me, and probably not the way you were introduced. I started with Carboline seven or eight years ago, and somebody asked me if I had met Steve yet. And I said, I said I'm not sure. Who's, who's Steve? And they were like, oh. Steve is Yoda. He is <laughs> he is the coding's equivalent of a Yoda Jedi master. That's probably <laughs> and, me. Yeah, <laughs> and it might have been. It might have been. <laughs> but Steve is the guy that we have always gone to whenever there's any question. Steve has done everything that there is to do with Carboline. Been in the industry for a long time. Retired last last year. Last September. Yep. So we've brought him back out of retirement to talk to us about one of the products that uh, he was involved with during its release. One thing I will say, Steve, is you look a lot tanner now than you did. Yeah, there's no yeah. green tint to you at all. Yeah. Uh, retirement fits me. Yeah. <laughs> I like retirement. <laughs> I bet. The other thing that I was going to say about Steve is he's kind of the Carboline historian. Throughout the years in tech service, you didn't inevitably get a question that was some completely random off-the-wall thing that would be like, in 1981, you guys sold a product specifically for this market, and you'd look in the files, you'd look in the digital, uh, and nothing. There'd be absolutely nothing about it, and you'd go knock on Steve's door. Steve, I got one for you. And you always knew, like, did you forget anything that ever happened? <laughs> Well, you know, it's easier to be a historian when you've lived it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and not only could he remember it, he would find papers and documents and have stories or pictures, something, and pull them out. Just, it, it only took a second. And all of a sudden, your inbox is full of, of history. But I'm sure Steve's tired of us talking about him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a good thing like... you got me in here now because I'm going to be forgetting this stuff before too long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we wanted to bring you in about one of your uh, last product releases that you did or a couple last. I guess it was a couple years before you go. But we want to talk about the Carboline insulative coatings and insulative coatings in general. Uh, there's a lot of misconceptions out in the industry about what these coatings actually do. 
and we kind of want to spend some time to get some clarification there. All right, so the products that we're talking about in the Carboline line, it's the Carbotherm 3300, and that's the single-pack acrylic uh, insulative coating, and the Carbotherm 551, and that's the epoxy-based one. And that's really the one that we kind of focus on because that was unique. Can you tell us a little bit, Steve, about how we came up with that product and what its purpose is in the market? Well, the first product, the Carbotherm 3300, was Carboline's first entry into that into this insulative market. And there have been a number of competitors that had products like it on the market already. It was a product that fit a nice niche for us. I think our sales reps had a difficult time getting their head around it because it was so different than corrosion-resistant coatings because it's completely different. Customer base is different. You have to talk to a safety engineer, not a corrosion engineer. So it was a different selling approach to customers. And so the 3300 was our first entry into the market. The 551, on the other hand, was an epoxy version of the same concept that was actually came out of the lab. It was their idea, taking the epoxy technology, the water-based epoxy technology, and making the product do the same thing the acrylics did with increased physical properties properties, chemical resistance, and one of the things that made 551 so attractive is fewer coats and less time between coats. It really is. One of the advantageous parts that came out of this was we have, it's shore D increased, the maximum dry film thickness we can apply at one time went up, it almost doubled, and we had a huge decrease in recoat time. So you factor all those together and the idea that with that increased hardness and chemical resistance we get from an epoxy, you don't have to always top coat it. That's correct. That was one of the big selling features. Although these products, they're porous by design. We always like to recommend a top coat for color, to seal the surface, because they do pick up dirt. And so everyone likes a, a cleaner looking tank, etc. So a uh, top coat makes a lot of sense in terms of providing the color and sealing it, keeping it cleaner, easier to clean, and giving it the, the gloss that the customer wants. I want to take a minute and talk about what these products actually do, because these products are not meant to be a rock wool insulation replacement. They, they serve kind of a different purpose. And Steve, could you get into that a little bit? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, because these are thin film, relatively thin film insulative coatings. When you think of standard insulation, you think of mirror wool blankets, pipe insulation, and these typical materials are typically two, three, four inches thick. These type products go on in, in terms of a half a millimeter, you know, 20 mils, 40 mils maximum per coat, and typically applied in really no more than four or five coats, then they become less economical after that point. So we call them thin, thin insulative coatings as compared to the thicker standard insulation materials that are out on the marketplace. So these uh, thin film insulative coatings, even though they have great K values, and we can talk about what that means, uh, great insulative values and on a par with the standard insulation products, but they're not applied as thick as the insulation products. And so therefore, from an insulation standpoint, they're not as effective as the standard insulation materials because they don't, they're not applied as thick and it, it becomes too expensive to apply them as thick. So their use is really more for worker protection to do complex geometries, valves, piping, places where standard insulation, the labor to, apply, uh, to install that is, is complicated and expensive. So these thin film insulative coatings have a, a place where we're looking to protect workers from in, in areas that are, have perhaps complex geometries or even flat surfaces. And high worker traffic. I mean, that's one of the things with just 100 mils or so, you can bring down the temperature of vessels that operate above 300 degrees back into where it's safe to touch. The I believe the 140 
Fahrenheit is the line of where it's safe, what that OSHA states is safe to touch for a worker. OSHA has a standard that says if your workers are within, I think it's seven feet of a hot surface, you have to protect your workers by either putting up a, a fence or insulating the surface uh, and keeping your workers from touching a hot surface that's, up, that's at, at 140 degrees F or higher. And they're saying that if you do touch a surface at 140 degrees for more than five seconds, you can get a first degree burn. And that's kind of the, the benchmark. All right, we need to take a break to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by Carboline. This month, we're going to be talking a little bit about the Carbocrete line of floor coatings that Carboline has offered. These are urethane cements that have high moisture vapor transmission resistance. A lot of them contain polygene, an antimicrobial ingredient to help in food and beverage facilities. These are heavy-duty floors that have really good mechanical damage and thermal shock capabilities. And they offer protection that you, you can, can stand, stand on. on. So when we're talking about the insulated values of a coating like this, one of the stories, and, and Steve, I think you're the one that, that gave me this analogy way back when, and I'm one of the people I deal with with this with these recommendations a lot. The story you told about, you know, you've got a cast iron skillet and a towel in an oven. Which one are you going to grab first? What we're talking about is the thermal conductivity properties of these products. When you've got a steel structure, you have a real high thermal conductivity, but these insulative coatings have a much lower that's correct. Uh, the misconception of these products is that they lower the temperature. And what they do is they lower the effective temperature, or what, they, what the industry is referring to as the touch temperature. So in your analogy of the, of the oven, uh, you take a cast iron skillet and an oven mitt and put it in the oven and wait for the, them both to equilibrate and reach 350 degrees. The, if you go to pick up the cast iron skillet, you will burn yourself. Well, why? Because the cast iron skillet has a much higher K value or thermal conductivity value. And I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but it's in the hundreds. The oven mitt, much like the same concept of these thin film insulated products, has a K value that's less than one. So even though they're at the same temperature, you can pick up the oven mitt because it doesn't transfer heat, thermal conductivity, into your hand. Okay, it's the same thing as why you use an oven mitt to pick up a cast iron skillet. You're not going to use a, a piece of aluminum foil to pick up a cast iron skillet because the heat will conduct through the aluminum foil much faster because it has a higher thermal conductivity. And, you know, on that same scale, when you do it, most people are going to grab that towel and fold it over two or three times Correct. to be able to give you more insulative value, which that kind of goes back to these products don't have the same insulation properties or insulation values as the rock wool or the mineral wool insulation because they're thin. So you get a very short time period where you get that buffer time, which is why the test that they do, you know, it's also, it's a five second test. Correct. One thing that these products do really well in with the thin film insulation and the K value is condensation control. And I'm hoping that you can kind of get into how that works and why it controls the condensation. Before I answer that, let's go back and talk about the, the thermal conductivity value again. Okay. When we actually apply these materials over a hot surface, let's say at three coats, 40 mils per coat, so we have 120 mils, and we can touch the surface of the coatings and not burn ourselves. But if you were to take uh, an IR gun, temperature gun, and measure the temperature, the surface temperature of the insulated coatings versus the steel, the steel might be at 350 degrees Fahrenheit. The surface of the insulated coatings might be 270 degrees. So you're saying, well, why won't I burn myself if it's 270 degrees? Well, it's the same concept as the oven discussion we just had. But because it has a much lower thermal conductivity, the heat is what's doing the burning, not the temperature. It's the heat. 
so the heat doesn't transfer into your hand, even though the surface temperature is still high. Now, when we switch to condensation control, it's all about surface temperature. When we think about condensation, we think about your soda can, a cold soda can in the middle of summer, it's going to be sweating. Your um, dew point, your condensation, has to do with your relative humidity and the surface temperature of the object. We're not talking about thermal conductivity at all anymore. It's always about surface temperature. And so when we talk about condensation control for cold surfaces, even though the, the pipe or structure might be 20 degrees F, let's say, and using these materials, let's say two or three coats, what you're going to find is uh, the surface is not going to be cold to the touch, but it'll still be, the temperature will still be cold. And so you still get condensation. And so what you, what you find is when you're trying to do condensation control, you need thicker uh, layers or more layers of these products to, to get the surface temperature above the dew point. And that's why when you do condensation control, the, the thicknesses that you need are higher than the thicknesses you need for heat control. Because the heat has to do with thermal conductivity, and the condensation control has to do with surface temperature. And I think that's an important key to remember. And, and as we've talked about this, we say condensation control. Not condensation elimination. Not delete it from existence. Right. We're controlling it. And really what we're trying to do is minimize the amount of conditions in which it's right to have condensation form. Right. We're never going to be able to eliminate it. And I put together a lot of these charts using the software that's available. And sometimes the thicknesses get stupid thick. And, well, and it's going to be different depending on part of the country. It, right. You get a call and say, well, how, how thick do I need to get rid of my condensation on my vessel? Well, you have to ask the question, well, what's your worst case scenario in, mm -hmm. in where you're at? What's your humidity during the summer? And it fluctuates whether it's time of day, time of year, whether you're in Phoenix, whether you're in Michigan. And so the thickness is going to vary. The required thickness will vary even by the time of day. When I used to get those kind of questions, you know, how thick do I need? It's like, well, take your worst case scenario and keep applying thicknesses or layers until you're happy. Because it's going to change from morning to afternoon. Yeah. You know, and it may be a case where they just want to reduce the number, the amount of condensation because it's uh, it's dripping on the floor and causing some safety issues, and and um, you want to get to the point where it maybe it evaporates as fast as it's forming, or it just creates a few drips, and that we can live with that. So condensation control is kind of it's up to the end user what he's happy with. Right, and we we have had a lot of good results with it, and it's never been at the when they give you the worst case scenario. Yeah, this is in southern Alabama in the summertime, and my pipe is 43 degrees, yeah. and I don't ever want it to condensate. Well, that, that becomes a ridiculous level of uh, a ridiculous thickness. Yeah, they won't that, be able to afford it. Right. right. Well, and it's one of those things time and time again, as we do this podcast and as you listen to this podcast, you hear us say how every little thing matters. Like, every little thing, every little, you know, ambient temperature, temperature of the pipe, humidity, Wind. Wind. All of those things will affect this very similar to other topics that we have discussed. You know, life expectancy is a very big one where every little factor changes it to a spectacular degree. I guess that's why we have jobs. Yeah, yeah it really is. We, we help interpret those details. Some of so, us have jobs. <laughs> <laughs> I think you have the best one. Yeah, I'll trade with you. Yeah. So I think the last topic that we wanted to really hit on with this, and, and it was a new one that I understood better after after talking with Steve getting ready for today's show was the sound dampening properties that these types of coatings have and the misconception of 
it's not actually working like in our studio. We have sound dampening on the walls. And we told Steve, we said, yeah, we were thinking about putting 551 on the walls. He's like, yeah, that wouldn't work for what you want to do. Why don't you get into a little bit, tell us how this actually works, like if they were putting it on a boiler room or an engine room on a ship, how that actually works to help deaden the sound and reduce the noise. Yeah, that's a good question. These sprocks, because they're lightweight, can be used to coat over bulkheads around engine rooms or equipment rooms that are noisy. And the way these products work, not so much to, to soundproof the room as it is to attenuate or sound deaden the walls. And so it, if, if you're in a noisy engine room and uh, the walls are vibrating and the, the sound wants to travel through the ship, through the bulkheads, etc., what these coatings do is help uh, dampen the sound through the structure. It helps deaden the sound before the sound becomes sound through the structure. It doesn't work like in this room where you have sound dampening, sound proofing. They're, they're not meant for that. There are materials that are used on ships, as an example, that have been used for years. They're one-inch thick rubber mats that are placed on the inside of uh, the hull to uh, sound dampen noise through the structure. And they're very heavy and cumbersome to put on. So these products, when they came along, are a very easy application, uh, thinner materials that, that can do the same job, is to attenuate or dampen that sound through the structure. But very similar to what we were talking about earlier is, is a, a drum cymbal. Uh, you hit a drum cymbal and it and it wants to ring after you hit it, and then you go and you and you grab it, and it attenuates or dampens the sound or eliminates the sound. Same principle. These products are used to, on the structure, on the item to dampen the sound through the structure. And I think the key, and like Steve said, it prevents or dampens the transmission through the item, not the reflection off the item. Correct. So that's that's the real key difference, and that's why it's not going to give you a huge decibel lowering. If you're trying to use it in a studio like we were thinking about doing. That's correct. Well, outstanding. I think we've covered, you know, a good introduction to these coatings. There's a lot more that we can get into. We could probably do a whole episode on thermal conductivity alone, but we didn't want to bore you guys with math and numbers. Steve, thank you very much for coming in. We're going to wrangle him in until he, like he says, forgets everything that he knows. Get him in here because he's a very valuable resource and it was great to have you in here, Steve. Well, it was my pleasure. Nice being with you guys again and call me when you need some more help. I have nothing else to do. <laughs> do you want to? All right, be careful with that request. <laughs> do, do you want to intro your song as the outro to this podcast? Oh, I'll let you do that. <laughs> well, I'm, not, I, I'm not. I'm certainly not getting any royalties from it. <laughs> no, we're not paying you a dime. But anyway, uh, thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you guys next Monday. Who put the line in? Bob